Good morning, everyone. I'm Wills Osborne, and I'm the youth pastor here at Melanie Park Church. It's my pleasure to bring God's word to you this morning. Will you pray with me? Father, it's a joy to gather in your presence with brothers and sisters in Christ, to be reminded of what you have done for us, the love that you have for us, and to be encouraged to do the things that you have created us to do. I pray that you would speak through me this morning for the encouragement of all who hear. In Jesus' name, amen. Do you have a hero in the faith? Is there someone who has passed into glory whom you admire for the depth of their faith in Jesus and their faithfulness in service to him? What is it about that person that makes them so special? One of my heroes is George Mueller. He lived in England in the 1850s, and when he heard the Lord ask him to dedicate his life to caring for the orphans in his area, he obeyed. His ministry, in retrospect, was incredible. Over the course of his life, he saw thousands of orphans fed, clothed, housed, and educated, with a special emphasis being placed on teaching them the Bible. But if you have ever read his autobiography, which I recommend, you know that his life was not easy. No, from the time Mueller committed to serving the Lord, he chose to live in constant dependence upon God for his own provision and for the provision of all who were dependent upon him. Daily, he got on his knees before his provider, labored in prayer, and asked God to give them what they needed. God always answered, but often in the most unusual and often uncomfortable ways imaginable. It was through this dependence that Mueller became such a steadfast man of faith. But Mueller wasn't always an immovable pillar of faith. He didn't always excel in doing the Lord's work. Actually, he essentially wasted the first 20 years of his life living for himself. Ironically, when the time came for him to go to college, he enrolled in divinity school, of all things. I say ironically because we learn from a biographer that Mueller's ambitions were much more geared toward the pursuit of a comfortable and prestigious life than humble service to God. You see, after years of partying and indulging in hedonistic behavior, Mueller knew that this particular career move would both please his dad and set him up for financial success. In seminary, he would major in theology and minor in worldly pleasures. <laughs> Yet it was while at his time at this school that he was forever changed. So what changed George Mueller? God did. God changed Mueller by the power of the Holy Spirit through the preaching of the gospel. The good news about Jesus Christ transformed him from a selfish schemer into a selfless steadfast servant of Christ, one who was willing to offer all he was and all he had to the Lord's work. It changed him into the man God created him to be. But how did this transformation come about? In 1825, Mueller was invited to a Bible study at a friend's house. It wasn't even connected to the school 
where he was studying the Bible. The first time he attended, he was impressed by the devotion of the Christians there. He returned to the Bible study several times and not long afterwards learned that Christ, by his sacrificial death on Calvary, had borne sin's penalty and died that he might be eternally saved. Through believing on the Lord Jesus, he became a new creature. The word of God became his joy and delight. Old companions were given up. And although ridiculed and laughed at by his fellow students, many of whom were professing believers, he boldly witnessed for Christ. Later, he would personally say, I was converted in November of 1825, but I only came into the full surrender of heart four years later. The love of money was gone. The love of place was gone. The love of position was gone. The love of worldly pleasures and engagements was gone. God, and God alone, became my portion. I found my all in him. I wanted nothing else, and by the grace of God, this has remained and has made me a happy man, an exceedingly happy man. And it led me to care only about the things of God. The gospel changes everything. The gospel changed George Mueller. The gospel changed me. And by the grace of God, the gospel continues to change me. And it can change you, too. If you have your Bible, please open it to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. This morning, we're just going to consider one verse, verse 58, in its context. And that with the goal of seeing that the gospel has the power to transform unstable sinners into faithful servants of Jesus Christ. We have it on the screen here, but you can follow along in your Bible if you have it. 1 Corinthians 15, 58 says, Therefore, my dear brothers and sisters, be steadfast, immovable, always excelling in the Lord's work, because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. As we work our way through this verse, we'll consider the context, the audience, the commission, which is made up of three exhortations, and the rationale for the commission. So to begin, let's consider the context. If you zoom out from this verse for a moment, you will discover that it is the last verse in a chapter. In addition to being the last verse, it's also the conclusion to an argument that Paul has been building throughout the chapter. His argument goes like this. First, the gospel that I, Paul, preached to you, Corinthians, has not changed. When I was with you last, I told you that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, was buried, was raised again, and appeared to many of his followers, including me, in his resurrected body. This message has not changed. Second, at the time when you heard me preach this good news, you received it every part of it, through faith, and took your stand on it. Third, after you believed this gospel, others from outside the faith tried to convince you that people are not and cannot be resurrected from the dead. But if there is no resurrection, then there is no gospel. And if there is no gospel, then your faith in Christ is worthless, and you are still in your sins. 
but it is a historical fact that Christ has been raised from the dead, which means that there is a resurrection and thus a gospel worth holding on to. Finally, if Jesus was raised from the dead, and he was, then you who have put your faith in him will be raised too, should you die before he returns. Paul could have ended his argument there. He could have said really anything to follow up after that. But what follows is the verse we are considering this morning. And this verse begins with the word, therefore. The word, therefore, is a transitional word, a word that moves Paul's arguments from concept to conclusion. Therefore literally means for this reason. So when we look at verse 58, we see that Paul is drawing on the force of the argument he has just made to support the conclusion and exhortations that follow. He is saying, therefore, since Jesus was raised from the dead, and one day you will be raised with him, stay grounded in your faith and let your actions overflow in faithfulness to Christ until you die or until he returns. His conclusion is that because the gospel is true, the believers in Corinth should live like they believe it. In a few moments, we'll consider the specifics of Paul's commission. But first, let's wrap our heads around the audience to whom Paul is writing. When we understand the audience, we will be able to see how directly these exhortations apply to our own lives. When we look at the next phrase in our verse, we notice three important truths about the original audience of Paul's letter and his relationship to them. These three truths are Paul loved them, Paul loved them, and Paul loved them. (laughs) I hope you can pick up on the nuance of these three identical statements, but if not, I'll try and explain it for you. First, Paul loved them we see that Paul has a familial affection for these saints when he calls them my brothers and sisters. The word that Paul uses here for brothers and sisters sometimes carries the literal meaning of biological siblings, but that's not what Paul's intention is here. He is not claiming to be related to every person who reads his letter. Rather, he's using it figuratively, which actually adds to the intensity of it. He is claiming to be spiritually related to each person in Corinth who has put their faith in Jesus and who has been adopted into the family of God. Because of their relationship with the Father, they now share a bond as spiritual brothers and sisters. The great Apostle Paul, with the desire he has in mind of exhorting them to greater things, could have called them anything. Or he could have skipped a direct address altogether. The verse would have made grammatical sense if he had skipped over it. But here he chooses to call them brothers and sisters. The appeal that follows has to be viewed not through the lens of an apostle giving a command, but as a brother in Christ inviting his siblings to a commitment of deeper faith and faithfulness. Next, we see that Paul loved There is a word inserted between my and brothers and sisters in my translation. You can see it on the screen, but is there a word between my and brothers and sisters or brethren in your translation? If you're looking at it, go ahead and say it out loud. All right, I heard two things. One is beloved and the other is dear. There may have been a third one out there, but for the most part, these are the two 
ways of translating that word. Both of them come from the Greek word, which is love, agape. But what we see when reading this is that Paul did not call them my brothers and sisters who I put up with. (laughs) He may have felt that way at times, and we probably feel that way about our natural siblings and the people even in this church. But Paul is saying, you are my brothers and sisters in Christ, and I love you. I love you so much that I'm willing to remind you of the truth. I'm willing to correct your theology. I am willing to urge you on to deeper faithfulness in Christ. It was his love for them that compelled him to do these things. Third, we see that Paul loved them. So who are they? They are a group of sinners saved by grace. They are, as a teacher of mine used to describe the men in our class, a bunch of knuckleheads. Seriously, if you read through 1 Corinthians, you will see that Paul was correcting their theology because their thinking was being influenced by the ungodly world around them. Even worse, he had to call them out on some shameful sin that they were allowing in the church. Sin that the ungodly world around them didn't even approve of. They were believers, yes, but they were still being sanctified, and there was a lot left to be done. Yet, Paul loved them. It's hard to love challenging people, but when you have experienced the love of God as Paul had, because of the sacrifice of Jesus made on the cross, you begin to think differently about sinners. And with the enabling of the Holy Spirit, you begin loving them differently too. Oh, there's actually one more thing I want to point out about this audience. Can you guess it? That's right. Paul loved them. (laughs) In this, I want us to notice that Paul is writing to a group, not just an individual. The Christian life is a group sport, so to speak. Or maybe more fittingly here, a family activity. Each member, as we will see, has their own work to do, but it's done in the context of the family of God. So when we see the exhortations that follow, we will want to keep in mind that this commission is being given to a group, not just an individual. Okay, now to summarize. Paul is addressing a group of people who had been transformed by the gospel, but who lived in a culture where philosophical opposition to the gospel was rampant a group whom he loved deeply despite their flaws, a group he considered to be his dear brothers and sisters in Christ. If it sounds like you could fit into the congregation in Corinth, then great. What follows is for you. Having just learned about the context of this verse and the audience to whom it was written, we now turn our attention to the three exhortations Paul gave his dear brothers and sisters in Corinth. Let's read the first part of our verse again and identify those exhortations. Therefore, my dear brothers and sisters, be steadfast, immovable, always excelling in the Lord's work. We'll stop there for now. These three exhortations are be steadfast, be immovable, and be always excelling in the Lord's work. Let's focus on the first one now. Be steadfast. Be steadfast literally means to be steady, unwavering, firmly established. 
The question then is, be firmly established in what? While this can be taken a variety of ways, I believe that Paul is exhorting the believers to be firmly established in their acceptance of the resurrection and to not turn away from it, no matter how they felt about it personally. There are two important ideas to consider in this definition. First, the believers are not to turn aside from belief in the resurrection. And second, they are not to turn away because of any new personal conviction they may have. Let me unpack these a bit. First, Paul encouraged the Corinthian believers to be steadfast in their understanding and acceptance of the doctrine of the resurrection. At the root of this idea is that what you believe is important, especially in matters of doctrine, those basic teachings of Christianity. What one believes is important because belief inevitably leads to action. My testimony reveals this. For much of my youth, I did not think of myself as a sinner. And that had consequences. Because I didn't view myself as a sinner, I fought with my siblings, used sarcasm, and cheated on assignments. When I did these things, I did not feel the sorrow that leads to repentance. Of course, I felt bad when my parents disciplined me. Well, at least physically. And when I got caught cheating, I apologized, but in my heart, I knew I was apologizing more for having been caught than for feeling bad about being dishonest. And I felt little to nothing when I was confronted for hurting people's feelings. But later in life, when my world fell apart, after I lost an important relationship, due in part to my own lack of self-control, I came to the firm conclusion that I was a sinner. And when I opened God's word, I read the most encouraging verse. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. In that season, my beliefs changed and so did my actions. Not perfectly, mind you, still a work in progress, but when God gave me his Holy Spirit, I grew in sensitivity, in honesty, and in self-control. You might even say the gospel changed me. When Paul wrote to the Corinthians to be steadfast, he did so because their ideas about the resurrection had changed. Namely, they were beginning to reject the notion altogether. And if left unchecked, this belief or lack thereof would lead to disastrous consequences. Earlier in the chapter before us, Paul noted that if the dead are not raised, it would be reasonable to reject the gospel. It would be reasonable to live like the lost, saying, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. But he immediately follows this idea up with a gentle rebuke. He says to them, come to your senses and stop sinning. By disbelieving in the resurrection, the Corinthians were opening themselves up to sensuality and sin. For this reason, Paul says, be steadfast. Let's return to our definition of steadfast and consider the second point, that Paul did not want his readers to turn away from the faith in the resurrection due to new personal convictions. The idea of new personal convictions is important here because it creates a helpful distinction between the exhortation to be steadfast and the one to come to be immovable. We will see in a moment that there are forces outside 
that may cause a person to abandon their faith. But the phrase, be steadfast, focuses on something else. The forces inside a person that cause us to waver in our faith. I don't know about you, but there are times when I just want to throw in the towel. To say, this is too hard. I'm over it. I'd prefer to eat and drink and enjoy my life and die when I die. It's this kind of mentality that we as followers of Jesus have to fight against. Those of us who have enjoyed the sweetness of his forgiveness, the peace of the Spirit, and the joy of service well done, must hold firm to the hope of resurrection and resolve to be steadfast. Let me be the first to admit again that being steadfast can be hard. With this difficulty in mind, I want to share five things that help me remain steadfast. They are scripture, sermons, songs, the saints, and the spirit. Often the last thing I want to do when I feel like drifting is to read the Bible. But so often when I pick it up and read it, I'm regularly reminded of what Jesus has done for me and what he wants of me as his follower. Second, I've found that by leaning on the help others have to offer through listening to sermons can help quite a bit. Last week's message by Brian, for example, provided a timely reminder of the gospel and helped reset my mind. On top of that, one of the radio stations I listen to streams pre-recorded sermons practically all day. So in the six minutes it takes me to drive from my apartment to my office here, I have the opportunity of being quickly reminded of important truths. In addition to sermons, I find that good Bible-based music has the ability to remind me of gospel truths and propel me toward faithfulness. The fourth thing that helps keep me steadfast is you. When you encourage me, share what you're meditating on with me, challenge me, or simply live out the gospel in front of me, I'm reminded of why I do what I do and for whom I do it. And beyond the walls of the church, other saints point me to Christ as well. Just the other day, I watched a dance production by Christ in the Arts at the invitation of one of our youth who was in it. Through the performance, they told the story of creation, the fall, the life of Christ, the resurrection of Christ, his ascension, and the sending of the Spirit. It was creative, thought-provoking, and a refreshing reminder of the gospel. Finally, there are times when I have to get down on my knees and simply ask the Father to use his Spirit to convict me, to ask him to help me, ask him to sustain me, And that's one of the things he loves to do. If you're fighting the desire to give up on the gospel, please consider reading one of Paul's letters. Listen to another good sermon. Find a song you enjoy that has good gospel truth to it. Connect with the believers around you and ask God to use his spirit to revive your soul. We have just considered what it means to be steadfast. Now we will turn our attention to the second exhortation. Be steadfast. Immovable. The definition of immovable is remarkably similar to that of steadfast. It literally means not movable. With the similarities of these two exhortations, you may think that Paul is just repeating himself here. But he isn't. There is a benefit in repetition, some of us know, but when we pay close attention to this verse, we are able to notice one major difference between these two exhortations. The difference between the exhortation, be steadfast, 
and be immovable is found in the source of the movement. Both definitions imply that the Corinthians are being tempted to move away from their faith in the resurrection. But be steadfast indicates that there is something within the person or church that is causing the movement away from the truth. By contrast, the phrase be immovable indicates that there are external forces trying to push the believer off their foundation. Not only did the believer in Corinth have to guard against their own wayward hearts, they also had to contend with the world around them and the reality of demonic forces that are opposed to the gospel. In other parts of the Bible, we are reminded that our battle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers of this darkness, against evil spiritual forces in the heavens. No doubt the church in Corinth was experiencing opposition from those forces as well. But more obvious in this letter, we see the influence of the world around them upon the believers. Throughout the letter, we notice that Paul combats human philosophies, like the promotion of factions, an appreciation for human wisdom, the acceptance of sin in the church, a willingness to sue fellow believers, and an openness to rejecting the reality of the resurrection, among other things. These philosophies were all, to a degree, compatible with the culture in Corinth, but they were incompatible with the gospel. So Paul says, don't let these things push you around. Hold on to what I taught you. Be immovable. Unfortunately, we live in a culture much like the culture of Corinth. We are constantly being offered things, philosophies, and experiences that will improve our lives, decrease our suffering, and provide us with happiness and security. The rejection or forgetfulness of the gospel, of the resurrection in our time, compels people, even Christians, to live entirely for today. Yet the gospel invites us to live for eternity. We can do without much of what the world has to offer because these things won't matter at all when Jesus returns. We have just considered what it means to be steadfast and immovable. Now let's think about the third exhortation Paul gives his readers. His third and final exhortation is, be always excelling in the Lord's work. Based on the first two exhortations, you might have expected this one to be something a little more like, and be still, be steadfast, be immovable, and be still. It would make sense, but that's not what he says. No, it's seemingly quite different. Instead of encouraging believers to sit back and relax, Paul is encouraging them to keep living the lives to which they had been called. While they were to remain steadfast and immovable, standing on the assurance of the resurrection, Paul adds, and let this security propel you to greater works. We read, be always excelling. And in this context, always means always or at all times. Either way you slice it, the believers were being told to keep on keeping on. Excel in the Lord's work at all times, in every way. He is asking them to continue to surrender their lives to Jesus, not just to hold their breaths and wait for his return. To do everything in their power, that is, 
the Holy Spirit's power to live as obedient children. Interestingly, Paul doesn't just say, be always doing the Lord's work. He actually says, be always excelling in the Lord's work. To excel here implies progress, growth, increase in capacity, quantity, and quality. What did Paul want them to excel in? In their work for the Lord. In ministry. A few chapters earlier, Paul reminded the believers about the gifts they had been given. Spiritual gifts that they were able to use for the common good. He's hinting at this here. He's asking them to let the Holy Spirit work through them so that they can excel in the Lord's work. Now, by way of application, it's possible that you have never been told that you were created for a purpose. You might be a new believer, and you have yet to be told that faith without works is dead. You might need to hear for the very first time that you were created in Christ Jesus for good works, which he, God, prepared ahead of time for you to do. If that's the case, I'm glad I get to be the one to tell you. But if you have been walking with the Lord for any time at all, you already know this to be true. So the question is, are you currently excelling in the Lord's work? Now, I know that some of you are hearing this and thinking, Wills, if you want me to do anything more, you are crazy. I'm already operating at max capacity. Adding even one more thing to my schedule is going to kill me. And I hear you. And let me assure you, that's not what I'm asking. That's not what Paul wanted for his readers either. He wasn't necessarily asking his readers just to add something to their schedule. He was, though, asking them to surrender their schedules to God so that he can rearrange their priorities, so that work will be accomplished and God would get glory. When God has a group of people who are surrendered to him, who allow him to empower and direct them, who increasingly follow his lead, more of the Lord's work gets done. But when we fill our schedules with the cares of this life and lose sight of the promise of the future, the promise of what comes after our resurrection, our effectiveness in accomplishing his work diminishes. So there is a tension here. God is the provider of the grace and power to accomplish his work. And there's plenty of grace and power to be had, but to a degree, we as, as the Christians in Corinth have to choose to surrender. We have to want to be obedient. We have to be willing to put our hands to the plow and excel in his work. But maybe you're in a different stage of life. Maybe you are thinking, I have time, I have energy, I have resources, I just need somewhere and somebody to serve. Awesome. To you, I suggest going to God directly today and asking him what he would have you do with the resources he has given to you. And then, as you go about your daily life, keep an eye out for opportunities that are only available to you. Look for any need that you are specifically able to meet. Maybe there are people in your life who need to hear about Jesus from you. Maybe there are people in your life who need your financial support. Maybe there will be people who cross your path this week who need you to pray for them. Maybe there are people in your life who need to hear an encouraging word from your lips. 
Maybe there are people in your life who need your forgiveness. I'd like you to start there. Start there and excel there. Now, if I may, I would also like to address a specific group within our church. I know of a handful of people who are currently in transition. That is, they have served faithfully in a specific ministry capacity, and the Lord has led them or is leading them to step away from that position. To you, I say, be always excelling in the Lord's work. As you, in a sense, retire from a ministry, please do not retire from ministry. It's okay to move from one thing to the next, and it's okay for those ministries to look entirely different from one another, but it is not wise to retire from serving the Lord. So as you consider how you will invest your time in the future, allow this text to guide you. Be steadfast, immovable, always excelling in the Lord's work. Paul could have ended there. It should be enough for an apostle to give a command and expect it to be carried out. But Paul isn't speaking here just as an apostle. He's speaking as a child of God to his brothers and sisters. So instead of simply ending with these exhortations, he gives a brief explanation of why. Why his readers should be steadfast, immovable, and always excelling in the Lord's work. And for this, I personally am grateful. What follows is the rationale for the commission. Let's consider why Paul encourages his brothers and sisters to keep the faith and excel in their faithfulness. He says, my dear brothers and sisters, do these things because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. Allow me to make three final points and then we'll close. In this clause, we see that Paul knew that As there is opposition to the gospel, there would be opposition to the Lord's work. He also knew that the work would be difficult, but he was certain that the payoff would be totally worth it. So first, Paul recognizes that there would be opposition to the Lord's work. We've seen this already. And this is indeed the reason Paul is writing in the first place. A philosophy had crept into the church that there was no resurrection. Where did this philosophy come from? It came from forces outside the church. It was what Paul in 1 Timothy 4.1 might call a doctrine of demons. This doctrine or teaching had been adopted by the world and was being fed to the church. It was a philosophy that was intended to shake the faith of these believers. It came from a source who wanted them to think that their faith and the work that they did in the Lord was, in fact, in vain. But Paul says, don't believe it. If he were to expand expand on this idea, I am certain he would point back to the cross of Christ and say, look, Christ experienced opposition. He experienced opposition that led him to the cross. But the very opposition he endured resulted in your salvation. Jesus' sacrifice was not in vain. And it's his sacrifice that you have been called to imitate in your work. This leads us to the next point. The labor we do in the Lord is just that. It's labor. And the word here implies hardship, toil, even pain. 
So unfortunately, we won't just experience opposition to our work. The work itself will at times be toilsome. But as you have seen in other areas of your life, hard work pays off. The difference between this type of work and some of the other work you have persevered in is that this is specifically called labor in the Lord. That means it's his work. He is doing it through you. And despite that it's his power that you are being animated by, you will be rewarded for it eventually. And this is our final thought. Your labor in the Lord is not in vain. Something that is in vain is something that is empty, worthless, foolish. And it sometimes feels like the word God asks, work God asks us to do is foolish. It may even at times seem worthless. But Paul's promise is that if we do it in the Lord, it is not in vain. Our labor is not in vain because the gospel is true. Our labor is not in vain because Jesus died on the cross and rose again. Our labor is not in vain because we have been saved and transformed and commissioned by our Lord. Our labor is not in vain because we have the hope of the resurrection from the dead still ahead of us. Our labor is not in vain because as we have been changed by the gospel, there are others out there and in here who need to be changed by it too. And our labor is not in vain because God intends to reward us in heaven for all we have done in faith and in Jesus' name while here on this earth. The Corinthians knew this to be true, and we do too. At the beginning, I asked if you had any heroes in the faith. Then I asked what makes that person so special. Based on what we have studied this morning, I would like to suggest that the heroes of our faith are special because though they were once sinners, they came to believe the gospel. But not only did they believe, they took their stand on it and were transformed by it. And as they were transformed by it, they chose to remain steadfastly committed to it. They did not allow themselves to be moved away from it for any reason and they sought to always be excelling in the Lord's work. As they served, they kept an eye to heaven, knowing that a greater reward awaited them on the other side of their own resurrection. We can now look back at our heroes, their labor finished, and admire their lives well lived. But we must look at ourselves today, Remember the truths of the gospel. Surrender ourselves again to God and invite him to increasingly change us into people who are steadfast, immovable, always excelling in the Lord's work because we know that our labor in the Lord is not in vain.